0: The software supply chain includes cloud infrastructure, on-prem proprietary solutions, APIs, programming languages, networking products, and open source software. Each of these software categories has its own security vulnerabilities, and each category has tools that can help protect a company from attackers that are trying to exploit those known vulnerabilities. As open source software has grown in popularity, it has turned into an enormous potential attack surface that is difficult to protect. Sneak, or S-N-Y-K, if you have not known how to pronounce that word, is a company that builds security tools for companies that are consuming open source. Guy Pajarni is the CEO of Sneak, and he joins the show to discuss the security vulnerabilities of open source projects and how his business works. Guy was previously the CTO of Akamai, so he has significant experience in technical leadership. He's also the host of the podcast The Secure Developer, which I recommend for anyone who's interested in technical interviews about security topics. This was a great conversation. I definitely want to have Guy back on the show in the near future because there was so much that we didn't explore. So we'll definitely do that in the near future. Also, I want to mention we are hiring for two roles. We're hiring a content writer. If you're interested in writing about software engineering and computer science, perhaps you're, you have an academic bent or a journalistic bent, you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We are also hiring an operations lead. If you want to figure out how a business works and you want to help us improve our business, both of these roles will work closely with myself and Erica. And if you're interested in them, you can just send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. If your product has dashboards and reports, you know the importance of making those analytics products beautiful. Logi Analytics gives you embedded analytics and rich visualizations. You don't need to be a designer to get great analytics in your product. According to the Gartner analyst firm, the look and feel of embedded analytics has a direct impact on how end users perceive your application. Go to logianalytics.com/se daily to access 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. That's logianalytics.com/se daily. Logi Analytics is a leading development platform for embedded dashboards and reports. And Logi gives you complete control to create your own analytics experience. Logi Analytics has been a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily for a while, and we're very happy to have them. So thanks to Logi Analytics, and go to logianalytics.com slash sedaily, to find 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. You can get better dashboards and reports inside your product with embedded analytics from Logi Analytics. Guy Pajarni, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. If I am a late stage startup or an enterprise, I'm getting my software from so many places. I'm getting it from on-prem, cloud, closed source, open source. Describe the modern software supply chain.
1: Ooh, that's sort of a a big question. I think in general today, it depends on who is the consumer of that software, right? So you've got the sort of the, the, maybe the... Central sort of sysadmin sort of IT ops, you know, maybe a little bit more old school, but still very much reality today that might run sort of enterprise software, right? So they would be, it's not about the applications you build necessarily, but things that the organization needs to survive, right? So pieces of software is still, to me, primarily, still primarily purchased, you know, whether it's probably the big trend there is sort of software as a service and all that, you might be running on-premise and you'd run on those, but they're still primarily vendored. I don't think open source quite dominated that area quite yet. Maybe maybe databases, you know, are kind of the exception to that statement. And then there's the software you build, sort of the applications that you build, right? As a it doesn't really matter actually if you're sort of a startup or a large organization, you know, like your your own developers as they build it. And I think over there really is where a lot of the changes happen. Over there when you think about modern development today, most of the software, the components you do are, are really open source, you know, it, you're not, it seems quite odd today to like buy an SDK, you know, or something like that. So you'd be buying, you would have vendors that are platform vendors about where is it that you run. So you might get some managed Kubernetes from something or, or the likes, and you might still sort of license software as a service for sort of surrounding services, and you do that a lot, whether it's the cloud platform again, or it's, you know, whatever it is, you know, Auth0 for authentication or some hosted database or or things like that, and tooling. So that's very much, you know, very common, these third-party services that you'd run around. And in your software itself, it's pretty much all open source. So I think when you look at kind of that constellation, the key difference between that delineating line, I mean, yes, there is like technical, do you use a service, do you use software, you know, did you but the key difference is actually, did you buy it or did you just download it off the internet? And if you do, if you use open source, which is amazing and spectacular and, and and rising, the shift or the real change is that people need to own it. Right? When you download you know, a library, you know, from the internet, right, or or some, some piece of software, whether it's to connect your app to Facebook, or it's a database or anything like that, there's nobody there to sort of have your back, you know, the community is there, they're going to educate you, they're going to, you know, like, kind of help you uh, maybe use it correctly. But fundamentally, you own it, you know, you downloaded it, you own it. And so I think when you talk about, kind of maybe software management, right? And sort of understanding what do you need to do for these, these open source components are this this weird sort of a, a hybrid, right? The third party software, it's not software that you've written. You don't know it very well. You're not going to edit it, but there's no vendor around it. So I would say kind of in, in, you know, I deal a lot with sort of this this notion of the software supply chain and sort of open source security. And in that space, the, the realization that I think is sinking better and better is that you need to invest within your development process within your tooling within your company in having the right kind of foundation to deal with with owning those bits of software. Open source
0: has been a growing volume of the software that has been consumed. What are the vulnerabilities in this open source section of the supply chain?
1: Vulnerabilities in open source are are just like you know your everyday vulnerability, right? There's nothing really neither more secure nor less secure in open source components. They can range from uh, some cross-site scripting vulnerability in a front-end component to an SQL injection to something that's behind to a remote command execution. All the same vulnerabilities you can write in your code. The primary difference is in prevalence. So first of all, when you look at an application today, you look at the amount of codes deployed. 99% of the code deployed is not code you've written, right? You've written an app, you've used 10 libraries, they pulled in 500 others, you know, in, in a cascading order. And generally speaking, you're getting a ton of value, you know, that way very, very quickly, but you're also getting a ton of code. And that code has bugs, and those, some of those bugs are vulnerabilities and are security bugs. So they range from severe to, you know, to benign, sometimes exploitable, sometimes not exploitable, but the vast majority of your code, and with that, the vast majority of your risk, comes from those components. So that's sort of one way to look at it, which is these vulnerabilities, they vary, but they primarily come from the open source components you use. The other angle to that is the attacker's perspective. So, you know, if I, if I want to break into your app, I can do a lot of heavy lifting and figure out, you know, the bits of code that you've written and find vulnerabilities in it. And if I've succeeded and, and I've evaded detection in the process, then I can hack your site, right, or serve your application. While... If I found a vulnerability in OpenSSL, off the bat right away, a third of the web or a quarter of the web is suddenly vulnerable to these components. So these components are, are more easily found. you know I can just sort of find that library, I can you know disassemble it, I can kind of re- you know, reverse engineer it, find a vulnerability in it without anybody without any risk of capture. And then once I found a vulnerability, I can actually exploit it, you know, in, in many, many, many victim very different victims. And the last step of that process is I oftentimes don't even need to find that vulnerability because security hygiene at scale is hard. So if I'm not actually targeting a specific organization, but I'm just looking for victims, you know, that I can steal stuff from or whatever I can run some Bitcoin mining on, then what I might do is is just look at the known vulnerabilities that have already been discovered, especially ones that have been discovered recently run an exploit for them. Once again, I probably don't even need to do that. I can just find one on the internet, or buy it on the dark web. And then I can just run this canvas exploits and I will find a lot of vulnerabilities. So it's really about that prevalence of open source code, both its percentage in your app and its sort of prevalence across customers that makes open source vulnerabilities more dangerous. Not, the, not that they themselves, sort of open source code is, is neither more or less secure. Does that make sense?
0: Are you saying that because some of these open source libraries are so popular, it makes it more valuable for people to find vulnerabilities within them and potentially sell those vulnerabilities
1: or just use them as essentially zero days? Yeah, basically just exploit them. And, you know, either it's, yes, you know, it is more valuable for attackers to sort of find them. But I'm saying even beyond that, many, most attacks that attack open source components. The ones performing the attack are not the ones that found the vulnerability. You know these vulnerabilities; it's all very public, right? So you see that we'll, we can, I don't know, we can mention uh, Shell Shock. Shell Shock was this like very big vulnerability in in Bash that came out. I don't know I want to say about three or four years, maybe five years ago, right? Super severe remote command execution vulnerability in Bash. You know, if you had quite a common set of constellations, then you can just break into servers quite easily. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a severe vulnerability, but it's 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 nothing really terribly unique. What's unique is that Bash is everywhere. So within two days, you saw botnets deploying exploits of Shellshock. Shellshock was discovered. I forget who it is that sort of found the exact, like, you know, that disclosed it. But it was legitimately found by researchers who disclosed it responsibly. And if you updated to the latest version of Bash, you would be secure. But updating is hard, you know, and updating at scale is hard. So really, it's it's this race. And what attackers find compelling is... Yes, they can find vulnerabilities and use them in many ways, but oftentimes they don't even need to find them. They just need to either write an exploit or use an exploit, and it's all about doing that quickly, and then they will find a lot of victims, you know, to to be able to exploit. So it's just a you know attackers are lazy, just like all of us, and it's easier for them to find a, find the victims that way. You're the
0: founder of Sneak. Explain what Sneak does.
1: Sneak is a dev-first security company or sort of solution. Really, our premise is as sort of software development changes and more and more responsibility and capabilities get built into the app, a lot of the security responsibility of those shifts into the developers. So whether you think about, you know, the operating system that's now in containers and previously was in VMs, right? If you think about network configuration, that might be like a VPC or some data center configuration and now might be microservices configuration you define in your Helm charts. And of course, again, open source libraries and app code, all of those things combined for a broader app And that app is managed by developers, and they cannot be slowed down. You know, that's the business demand. And so our belief is that the only way to scale security in this brave new world, and to an extent the old one, is to get developers to embrace security. So we built a company that is a developer tooling company that tackles security. And we started with a core solution around securing open source, so helping you figure out which components, which open source libraries you use, are they, you know, well, first of all, what are you using? Are they vulnerable? And then most importantly, help you fix that without slowing down development. And that product has gotten kind of great developer adoption, has some 500,000 developers using the product, you know, sort of bottom up, free for open source projects to use. So kind of the product keeps us honest, right? If it's not, a, if it's not good, people won't use it, you know? So, so really building a, a developer-minded product. And then we've expanded, we're about four years old, so about a year and a bit ago, we started veering into also expanding into container security, and we actually have just now launched a a standalone container security once again, having that sort of dev-first security mindset to it, thinking of the container as this evolution of, of the app, not so much the evolution of the VM, and thinking about how can you, you know, kind of wrangle these Docker files, and, you know, how do you sort of patch containers as part of your build process, and do all of those things in a way that is kind of a first class citizen and is pleasant for a developer to use. Um, and of people sign the check are security or some platform teams, you know, that are a bit more governance minded, but even they the most important thing for them is that developers embrace it because if they don't it becomes shelfware.
0: That bottoms up Entry point developer tool that 500,000 people are using. What
1: is that? What does it do? It's about securing open source. So, well, the whole thing has a, a freemium component to it. So, you connect it to your Git repositories. It can connect in many places, but we're sort of best known for the Git connectors. So, you'd say, hey, connect to my, say, GitHub repositories. It will kind of crawl the repos that you've opted, we'll find package JSON files, POM XML files, you know gem files, whatever it is, that you know the dependency language that you use, and we'll expand the graph of dependencies that those files will generate. And then we'll intersect that with a vulnerability database. So we maintain a vulnerability database. You know, It's kind of a topic on its own right. If we want, we can dig in. But we basically keep a database of known vulnerabilities in the ecosystem. And then we, simply put, intersect the dependencies we found out you're using and the vulnerabilities we know exist. And we tell you which ones are vulnerable. And probably our biggest claim to fame is once you found a vulnerability and we told you, hey, you're using library A that uses library B that uses library C, C is vulnerable. We can tell you, well, if you just upgrade A to this minimum upgrade, it would trickle down to this upgrade to B and to this upgrade to C, and you'll be safe. You know, That's the way to fix it. We package that up as a fixed pull request, and we open that up to your repository, alongside, of course, any kind of email notifications and the likes. And so this this to me is is one example, maybe the strongest one, of. Developer mindless, you know. Developer's job isn't to find issues; it's to fix issues. So, if you want a developer to use a security solution like this, you know, if you just make work for me, I'm not going to like you too much. You know, like I, what, what I want you to do as a solution is to take load off me, you know, off my plate. So, this remediation, this automated remediation, was a core component of it. So, yeah. So that's the rambling a little bit. The core product is really around that: is figure out, connect to my repos. We have a CLI, gets a million downloads a month, you know, very widely used, that's more the Swiss army knife. The Git integration is a bit more opinionated. And then help me find out which libraries are used where, and then help me fix vulnerabilities in them in an ongoing fashion. When you get into the premium land, you get into governance components and you know, understanding what's used where in mass and guiding policies and, and license compliance and the likes.
0: If you are a SaaS or software vendor looking to modernize your application distribution to gain more enterprise adoption, check out replicated.com. Replicated provides tools to deliver your Kubernetes based application to enterprise customers as a modern on-prem private instance. That means your customers will be able to install and update your application just about anywhere. Bare metal servers in a cloud VPC, GovCloud in their own Kubernetes cluster, vSphere. This is a secure way that your customers can use your application without ever having to send data outside of their control. Instead of your customer sending their data to you, you send your application to your customer. Now, this might sound difficult and maybe you're not used to it because you're a SaaS vendor, you're a software vendor. But Replicated promises that recent advancements from tools like Kubernetes make it far easier than before, and the Replicated tools can help vendors operationalize and scale this process. The Replicated tools are already trusted by noteworthy customers like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others, And as a result, over 45 of the Fortune 100 already have an application deployed via Replicated in their infrastructure. That's a strong sign of adoption. Go to replicated.com for a 30-day trial of the full Replicated platform. You can also listen to an interview with Grant Miller, the CEO of Replicated, that we did a while ago. Thank you to Replicated for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can check it out for yourself at replicated.com and get a free 30-day trial. The auto-generated update to my Git repo that suggests the package that I should update to that will clear away my security vulnerability, how... Universally, does that work? Because I mean, sometimes if you update from like, this is why people get stuck on like Java 6 and like, I want to update to Java 7 across the organization, but I'm really scared because maybe it's deprecating something. Maybe it's going to add some latency. Maybe the garbage collector works differently. I don't want to touch it until I'm absolutely ready. So, how readily are people just ex- just merging in those suggested pull requests?
1: Yeah, I think it, it. So it depends. It's a really good question, and fundamentally, this is all one big exercise in risk management, right? If you don't upgrade, there's a risk, and right. if there is upgrade, there's a risk. And the first thing we're trying to help you do is understand that risk trade-off, right? If there's you know if shell shock is sort of present, right? If, yeah. if if you if you don't upgrade, then you're going to get owned by you know a botnet tomorrow. Then sometimes even taking the system offline is a better, you know, is a lower risk than doing it, let alone an upgrade. So what we first try to do is we try to inform you. And then the second thing is we try to introduce the understanding of how complex it is next to it. Uh, Most organizations work as, you know, they do an audit whether it's a thing that's built into your pipeline or it's a side thing, and it'll find this gazillion vulnerabilities. And then only the very top ones will get triaged, which is this painful process, right? Where some security expertise and application expertise need to combine to decide if this is worthy of fixing. And all that process happens and gets into increasingly small number of vulnerabilities just because of how expensive and slow it is. And then a subset of them would be logged as some cheer tickets. And only then somebody would figure out what it takes to make that vulnerability go away. So what we try to do is we try to make it easier to fix than to triage in many cases. So when you look at customers that embrace it, how easily or not varies based on ease of upgrade and severity of the issue. If it's a severe vulnerability that has a patch upgrade, people embrace it very quickly. If it's a major upgrade, it very clearly slows things down. And now there's a conversation. If there's a very severe, a critical sort of a CVSS 10, CVSS is a standard severity scoring system. And... If it's a CVSS 10 uh, vulnerability, even if it's a major upgrade, you know, you might pull the cord and sort of stop stop the, uh, the factory line to fix the issue in place. So, so we see it, other variety of, you know, like another variant might be, how good are your automated tests, you know, in the system. So indeed, some systems are more fragile than others, how, you know, sometimes it's just literally the, uh, the bias for updates that, you know, one development team might have versus another.
0: So this kind of scanning of my Git repos, this could be useful as a cron job, it could be useful as something in my CICD pipeline, how does that scan fit into a developer's workflow?
1: Yeah, I, I think the full answer is all of the above, but it boils down to different values at different stages of development. So... I'll kind of take two stances of it. One is, you know, developers are this beautiful people. I'm a developer. I'm kind of allowed to comment that way. Which is, on one side, you know, you want tools to just work. You know, like you come in. You know, we've got like 30 seconds, uh, ADHD. You know, <laughs> to make an impression, and it needs to just work. And I don't care how complicated my environment is. And on the other side, once it works, it needs to be fully customizable. Right, and fully adaptable. So the way we tackle those two is we have opinionated integrations into things like Git and connecting to Kubernetes, and they work in a way that just works next, next, next. You know, it just kind of works. And we have this command line interface and API that are the Swiss army knife, so you can adapt it to your surroundings. So, you know, those two paths allow us to adapt to the, you know, always reasonably unique different development processes that people employ and then with those tools we tend to connect in three places the source code is closest to the fix so whether it's git or an ide plugin which we have a bunch of as well those are the earliest places where you can find an issue they're very, they're most interactive so you're you're writing code or you chose to whatever you open the pull request will tell you hey you've introduced the vulnerability it's the great places and you can open a fixed PR, right? So that's closest to the fixed and earliest detection, so lowest cost. The pipeline, this, mostly the CI, CI-CD sort of systems, are really where you put policy enforcement. It's the sort of thou shall not pass type elements, but breaking a build is a, is a pretty hefty action. So again, if it's a super critical vulnerability, or we also do license audits, so if it's like a GPL component, you might say, I don't care, break the build. You know, It's, a, it's okay that everybody stops to fix this thing. And then, last but not least, is we monitor production systems, so we 'll connect to lambda to see which functions you have there, or to Kubernetes to see which containers you're running or a variety of others, and that 's kind of closest to the facts you know because sometimes, especially in container land. You know, you have blue-green trains, right? You have multiple versions running on it. Or you might have, uh, you pull down, you know, some Nginx image from Docker Hub. So it may never have gone through your pipeline. So the, the kind of the, the monitoring what's actually deployed in production is closest to the facts. And so, well, there's a vulnerable kind of library here, a vulnerable container. I don't really care how it got there. You know, you need to deal with it. And it's also a place for us to get insights and now say, okay, now we know that this container is deployed in this, you know, publicly accessible critical system, we use that information to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities we found early on in the Git to say, well, this vulnerability you really need to to tackle right away. We even do some runtime insights. So you can, for a few of the languages like Java, JavaScript, what you can do is you can actually use Sneak in runtime to figure out which libraries or which pieces of code from every library you're actually executing in runtime. So once again, it helps you prioritize to say, hey, we found this vulnerability in the source code or in your dependencies. During development time, we know that this vulnerability, you're actually invoking the vulnerable code in production, which is not necessarily the case for all the ones we find. So you should deal with that one more urgently than the others.
0: The strategic advantage of SNCC or the, the moat, you might say, or at least one of the moats is your vulnerability database. So there are these public vulnerability databases where people can go and find out at any time, here are some known vulnerabilities across the internet. What's the difference between your vulnerability database and the public vulnerability databases?
1: So again, kind of a good question here. So just establishing a little bit of knowledge base, right? So vulnerability is the most standard way to find out about vulnerabilities. Is the NVD database, the natural Vulnerability Database, uh, with CVEs assigned to different vulnerabilities, common uh, vulnerability enumeration, I think, or vulnerabilities and exposures? Sorry, you know that system was designed really for, you know, whatever a Cisco appliance that has a vulnerability and they need to have some standard way of, of getting an ID there and getting it to all their customers. It has It's a slightly laborsome process. To First, you need to know how to, like that you need to get a CVE assigned, you know how to do it. You need to debate a little bit with, uh, with different CNAs, CVE numbering authorities on, you know, is this a real vulnerability? Is it really a, a topic? Uh, like, you know, what's, what's the severity of it? Sometimes, you know, if I find a vulnerability in your library, you know, there's a little bit of an ownership. Like, am I allowed to find a vulnerability in your library and just disclose it? So sometimes you need to like prove ownership. It's my library. I'm allowed to report a vulnerability on it. It's a complicated process. It's definitely not designed for open source library maintainers. You know, they don't know any of the above. They have no incentives to really um, go off and 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 go through this process, even if they know it exists. So the reality is when fixes happen in open source land, a maintainer would fix the vulnerability and say as much in the release notes and that kind of disappears into the ether of GitHub. And so what we do is we have a, a, an internal system, which is kind of think of as a threat intel system, that listens to open source activity. So it listens to all sorts of GitHub activities, it listens to Apache Jira projects, to you know, Red Hat forums, to all sorts of researcher social feeds. And we glean candidate vulnerabilities, and we funnel them to analysts, to real people that look at them and say, is this a real vulnerability or not? And if it is. Then they figure out what it is. Okay, so like what's the vulnerability? What's the severity? Here's metadata explaining it. Here are the libraries and the versions that it's relating to. And they put that into the database. We also do, we have other sources to the database, like we do a cleanup exercise for CVEs. You know, the NVD is messy. You know, it's a, it has a lot of these vulnerabilities. Many of them have very incomplete like very unstructured type of data so we clean it up we have better data on it and we also we do our own research we collaborate with a whole uh, whole set of universities by now on various research projects so all of those end up uncovering more vulnerabilities. When we find a vulnerability, we go through our responsible disclosure process with the uh, the entities in place. And we also do that as a service to the community. So if, if you find a vulnerability in the library and you, you kind of don't know what to do with it now, you can come to us and we get several hundreds of those every quarter where somebody would reach out to us and we'll take the burden of doing the responsible disclosure. So all of those amount to this clean, high quality database of known vulnerabilities that is timely, sort of have vulnerabilities oftentimes before there's ever a CVE, if it ever exists. It's more comprehensive, it's cleaner quality, and the database is primarily kind of a, a core component of the product. But then some, some kind of cloud giants, some big financial institutions, recently, like some players like recently Trend Micro, uh, which is a security player, there's a few others, actually licensed just the Intel. It's called it's Nick Intel. It's like just sort of that, that vulnerability database almost huh. that its own product.
0: Okay. How many people does it take to maintain that database and how much infrastructure have you had to develop around the practices of updating the database and you know prioritizing which vulnerabilities to research more?
1: Yeah, it's an ongoing exercise. So we have I think today probably about a twenty person security group. And they are not quite half and half, I'd say maybe about but you know close to half and half engineering and analysts. So the engineering side, and then some researchers. The engineering side is really what they do is that they build a system that increasingly, you know like everything we want to scale with tech, you know that increasingly listens to more and more sources of information and also improves the analysis as much as possible to basically hand the analysts on a silver platter. you know, here's all the information. you just need to sort of say yes. Right or even when you compose an advisory or things like that, can you pick and choose you know pieces of it? Is there an expert in the wild? Like a lot of those sources of information. And sometimes you know when there's enough confidence, the vulnerability is actually really just get a, a quick scan, right? A quick kind of a visual inspection. So those two teams work together. Where basically the engineering team is, you know, like this has been for four years now. We've been evolving and honing the system, right? So so the system allows us to scan more and more of the internet. You know, and find more and more vulnerabilities in in looser and looser structures. But then similarly, they allow the analysts to be able to do work more efficiently. So the analyst team has definitely been growing, but not linearly to the output that they provide. So those teams kind of work together to to produce something that is a that is a quality output. And research is is generally more inspiration, and you know, also research, you know, we can compete with the world. We're not going to find more vulnerabilities than the world does. But what we do do is when we do a research, a piece of research, we'll find, and we'll disclose some vulnerabilities, but then we use that knowledge to build better rules into the system, to find other patterns, other candidates that help us just sort of evolve and improve what to look for.
0: And when you're talking about looking for things, It sounds like it's a combination of automated and manual processes. So this, like, can you, do you scan stack overflow posts and you, like, look for people saying, look, I don't, really want to use this uh, Apache struts thing anymore I'm uh, sensing some vulnerabilities in it or you know you you look through github comments of some new JavaScript library and you know you can do some natural language processing and say oh uh, these people are talking about some potential you know cross-side scripting in this new JavaScript library maybe we should assign an analyst to look into this further because we've seen an in, from NLP we've seen some hints at, that this this could contain a vulnerability because the the boots on the ground developers are talking about this potential vulnerability. So I'm just bringing these up. I have no idea if this is what you do. Are these, is this am I in the right direction? Is this the kind of stuff that you can do to sort of hunt down the potential vulnerabilities across the internet?
1: Yeah, so I mean spot on, you know, that's some of many kind of approaches I will take. It might be as simple as somebody opened a GitHub issue or a GitHub pull request with a fix, and the title of that is SQL injection. And <laughs> okay, da, that's, da, that's, da, that's da, even much worse. So that's like a, a very very simple version of it. But still, right. if you didn't weed it out, you know, yeah. you wouldn't do it. And it goes all the way to indeed saying, in yeah, here's like a forum conversation, and they're talking about, you know, hey, when I run this server, it keeps crashing, and it consistently, you know, when I do this, it keeps crashing. Like they might have not even realize it's a vulnerability and we'll funnel it down. And that's when I was referring to the system getting better and better is, you know, when we started, we were really pretty much finding the former, right? It was more about just uncovering bits of information that were just not, you know, centrally located. And then as we get better and better, then we're able to find more things that are more elusive. What we don't do really is we don't really look for zero days. Like we do it in the research bit. But we, we generally don't focus heavily on finding vulnerabilities that are not yet known. You know, we, we, we do it as research, but I guess our view is that companies are struggling today as it stands to sort of cope with the known vulnerabilities. So we focus our efforts on, on getting that nailed, because we see it as a higher priority than finding the more of the unknown vulnerabilities, which matters as well, It's just not as urgent.
0: When you get something like that uh, example you mentioned where somebody has opened a new github issue that is a pull request fixing some sql injection thing but it hasn't been merged in with the code base yet so there's not actually a new version of the software that is there's no fix that's been issued yet you can scan that github repo you can find that pull request to fix a vulnerability you can add that to your database, but there's no remediation. Like There's no suggestion to give to a developer. So what do you do in that situation where you add it to your vulnerability database, some developer who that's using that package uh, runs the scan. And they find, oh, this thing is, has a vulnerability, but there's no fix issued
1: yet. Yeah. What do you tell them? It's a tough situation, and that is unfortunately reasonably common. If you have a library and it has a vulnerability, Generally, you want to know. And there are oftentimes other ways that you can fix it, you know, but again, it goes all the way from like, this is so severe, you will take this system down, right? Like, you know, this is a severe vulnerability. It is now known your system is dealing with sort of private customer data. You would actually prefer downtime, you know, in an extreme case, you know, to, uh, to having it to oftentimes many other ways for you just to sort of sanitize the input coming into this library, right? Or, uh, or otherwise, you know, separate it from the network. And so in such capacity, maybe it opened a port. So it depends on the vulnerabilities that are oftentimes mitigating controls that you can put. And what we try to do is we try to inform you about them in our advisory, right? So to tell you, hey, there's this issue here. You should know about it. And here's, here's what you can do about it. That statement, everything I just said, is absolutely true when you have one vulnerability. Now, when you have a hundred, then a very natural tendency is to start from the ones that are fixable. So... It depends on sort of the stage that you're at when you're dealing with the vulnerabilities. If you're just getting started, there's a bunch of flags in the product that you can turn on to basically only show you fixable vulnerabilities, because oftentimes those are the ones that you just need to just get going, you know, do something with them. But as you, as you kind of get a slightly better handle of the vulnerabilities in your system and you are kind of ready to level up, if you will, then really this is information that you should know and you should make a conscious decision on how to handle now off to the side, we for JavaScript only, and this is an interesting kind of um, something the ecosystem is still digesting, we offer patches. So what we like a more benign version of what you've just described is I'm using library A and it uses library B and B had a vulnerability and fixed it. all good. but there is no version of A that gets me to the safe version of B. like the, the dependency chains take a while to catch up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're stale and they don't catch up. So for those cases, what we've done in JavaScript is that we actually built patches. So we took the original fix, we packaged it up as a patch. We kind of stripped away any other unnecessary changes. We backport it to old versions. And we allow you to use a command called sneak protect to patch that. So from the base, what you can do, like you're in an app, you use A that uses B. You can't upgrade B. But what you can do is you can patch B. You'll install the vulnerable version of B and then you'll run sneak protect, and it would patch that vulnerability. So it would literally, it's a patch file, like you go in, find the relevant file, and patch it. And we're very, very diligent to ensure that we don't introduce any breaking changes or anything like that to those libraries. In fact, if there's a risk of breakage, we don't create a patch. You know, we kind of take that as a, as a limitation. And we apply today, I think about 600,000 patches a month for different vulnerabilities. And oftentimes, that's the way you, you address it. So for JavaScript, we do that. And then the last bit, you know getting a little bit here on my soapbox, but the, the last bit that we do is we keep monitoring the system for you. So if you used A that uses B and there is no vulnerability or no upgrade to get you to the safe version of B, we keep looking. Every day, we're going to run another test. And if a new version of A came out that fixes that vulnerability, or we say if there's an improved remediation method, then we will open what we call a sneak update PR to say, hey... Here's a fix. Even if you patched the previous one. So even if you previously patched, now there's an upgrade. We think an upgrade is better than a patch. We'll open a PR with that update. So we really try to, to as much as we can, kind of have your back. right? Those patches are proprietary, right? They're open source. They're available. You can see them. You really? Know, and, and they're available at the licensing that matches the library. Okay, in yeah, that's what I was going
0: to say. Right? That's cool. If you can make a patch, why couldn't you just submit that to the
1: github repo so to clarify a little bit right patches that we do really fix the the dependency chain problem so it's because b already has a fix it doesn't need anybody to submit anything to its uh, to its feed it's a that doesn't have an upgrade you know that uh, doesn't have those uh, and we you know we considered it but starting to suggest to a that they would upgrade you know, this version of B. We tried it. Open source contribution is this finicky area. Sure. Uh, if absolutely. You, if you do it at one place, if I went to A now and I said, hey, you know, you're using this vulnerable version of B, you should upgrade, it'll be well received. Yeah. If I found 10,000 repositories yeah. that use a vulnerable version of B and I opened a PR to every one of them, I'd be spamming. You know, I'd be considered a bot that is spamming the ecosystem. It's a very finicky. I actually agree with both sentiments, but it's uh, a little awkward. So we had these. This is early days, right? Like we talked about it early on with uh, with GitHub a little bit, and it's just basically the norms that were created in the uh, in the open source sphere. So if you're a, what you should do, and what many do do, is they use Sneak to secure their their project, and then they will get the notifications. But if you haven't opted in to do so. We're not just going to open unilaterally PRs to fix vulnerabilities you might be using.
0: When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I to learn more about G2I. Thank you to G2I for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects, so if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com/g2i. As a business, what are the expansion opportunities? So you mentioned uh, compliance, you mentioned uh, container security. Tell me about those adjacencies.
1: So the business in general, you know, like the, the way we, we make money is is as organizations buy us, you know, to, for use kind of across the org, right? And generally people purchase Sneak for the sort of more modern parts of their stack. And then we also support a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, basically your, your use of open source all the way back. So what pays the bills today is primarily the open source side, although about 40% of those who buy are sort of sort of sneak open source to secure their open source use also by the container add-on, which now is, as I said, sort of standalone as well. So both of those are doing really well. And just for context, you know, we 7x revenue last year. We're going to 4x revenue this year. We're, you know, we're sort of on a pretty hyper growth uh, rate at the moment. We're 70, 70 people at the beginning of the year. We're just over 200 now. So it's all, it's business is good on this front. And where we see kind of our vision and our destination is to continue tackling more of these security problems that have now landed at the developer's lap. So as the scope of the application grows and more and more infrastructure moves into it, more and more... You know, changes happen to software development. The only way to scale that is to get the developer to use it. And developers don't want 17 different tools. Nobody really wants 17 different tools tackling, you know, this perspective and that perspective. And also, they're all very intertwined, right? You take this app, your code, you put it in a container, you use these libraries, you configure it. So each of these things that I mentioned might have security kind of flaws in it, but they're very interrelated. So really what we're building is and and where our business grows is, is all around tackling more security threats, but we're doing it, we're pacing ourselves to ensure that at any given step we we maintain a really good developer experience. I'll give you a, an example of this for containers. So containers, as I said, we kind of we took this like dev mindset to them. So for example, we, we sort of sat down and we said, well, what's a good developer experience for securing containers? So well, for instance, when I find a vulnerability in a container, A core consideration is, did I introduce that vulnerability in a Docker file or is it in the base image? So the product really bifurcates on those two and says, well, if I found a vulnerability in the base image, I'm not going to tell you to upgrade, you know, library so-and-so to this version or like the binary so-and-so, because that's not the way you want to fix it. I'm going to tell you, you should change the base image to this. If I found a vulnerability that's in the Docker file, I'm going to tell you Well, you installed curl and that installed this library and that installed that library and that library is vulnerable, I'll give you context. And then I'll tell you that curl was installed from this line in your Docker file because that's what you want to know as a developer. So all of those are, they might, they seem obvious when I say them, but generally security tools, definitely container security tools have come from the governance mindset. So they're saying, hey, here's an image. Here's a bunch of files on it. They're vulnerable. Hey, here's a bunch of vulnerabilities go fish, you know, sort of, you know, figure out how to handle it. So, that's an example of how we tackled it in containers, and we're going to continue tackling it in more kind of a, sort of a, a larger scope of responsibilities for developers tackling more and more security threats. And what about compliance? Compliance, we also tackle uh, license compliance yeah. as part of it, so, you know, our using components. It's very common that it's being handled together, you know, sort of side by side. We've done, you know, I, I, I sort of fully say that we are a security company that also does license. There's a lot of companies in the space that are licensed companies that also do compliance. I think we, we find ourselves in kind of the current ecosystem that we have, again, the most developer friendly license compliance solution out there. But we really are, our core, our kind of heart is around security concerns. And we just, you know, like we listen to customers and our customers have told us we expect this product to also do license compliance. And when we do something, we 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 do it well. We don't really do it as a as a side ability. So we build good license compliance. We also do something called um, kind of dependency health to let you know if if this library is like you know you're using this component and it's stale. You know it's just like this this repository is not changing forever. And a more recent ability that we're actually kind of quite keen on and and actually not 100% sure it's been sort of fully publicly launched but it's been on for a bunch of months now through feature flags is dependency upgrade management so you know hey you're using you're using libraries software engineering daily exclusive yeah indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen so uh and and again it's sort of we see it as a part of it all comes down to the developer experience what what do you want to be embedded and what is it that that you want to run with so you know we, we there's lots to do. I don't think we're going to get be bored anytime soon.
0: How hard is it to build license compliance?
1: So from a dependency perspective, you know, it again comes back to these two bits, right? Like first you have to figure out which components you're using. So we're already doing that. So... Adding license compliance. Like that, that part wasn't additional work. We already know what you're using. And the second bit is to create a, a database of, of licenses. The first pass of that, pretty easy. You know, you do a pass, you get some licenses, and then really you start evolving it from there because licenses are not always as explicitly stated. Sometimes li- uh, components have um, multiple licenses. Funny story is, we actually had, we have sometimes fixed PRs. For license compliance. And the way we found out is we forgot to turn off fixed PRs when we added license compliance. And it turns out in the ecosystem, sometimes a license or sort of a library will come out with either no license or some strict license. And then as it gets popular, you know, with pressure, with peer pressure from the ecosystem, they'll release a version of it that is more permissively licensed. Mm -hmm. So basically, we a lot of these mechanisms are the same as these dependency components. The true focused complexity is around is around building that that database you know and just understanding the subtleties over time what we don't do which is a different sort of threshold is is like snippets you know like hey did you copy paste something from stack overflow into your code and therefore you might be in violation and i would say today we rarely hear like only the most strict organizations really fuss about that today we're sort of living a little bit more in an era of packaged software and while you still copy-paste, the, the, the much more prevalent concern around compliance is at a component level.
0: The engineering of the vulnerability database and the scanning infrastructure, I'm a little bit curious about. Can you just tell me a little bit about your your software infrastructure? Give me the high-level software architecture for how Sneak works. For for that
1: back office for this yeah for, uh, for your the, for your, Intel your just just
0: on your your server side like what what infrastructure are you using what cloud providers are you using what database do you actually use for this vulnerability scanning database and so on.
1: Sure. So we there's a whole bunch of this. So so Snik itself
0: time box it to yeah yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, Snik itself runs. We're primarily a SaaS offering, uh, so it's primarily hosted. We run most of our uh, most of our systems today on Google Cloud and a portion of uh, of it on AWS. And we're a node shop primarily at this point. We have especially as we tackle multiple languages, we have different pieces of code that are in native language. Sometimes, if you want to understand python dependencies you're better off writing a microservice in python because of some access and any kind of uh, language subtleties but uh, but the majority of our system is written in node which was also the first ecosystem that we supported so it was kind of related we have in terms of like the the stack you know we're we're sort of a kubernetes shop you know do we use a variety of you know, a kind of our own components. Auth zero for for authentication. We use you know logs io for logging. So we use a bunch of those sort of services around us. Israeli company. Israelis, yeah, some some Israeli uh, kind of uh, friendlies over there. auth Zero isn't Israeli. No, that's uh, we we love them as well. We use Hacker One for our bug bounty, you know. So we, we we kind of leverage the ecosystem as well. And it's actually kind of fun when many of these customers are many of these companies are also our customers. So that's also sort of a, a nice uh, trade off. Those dependencies of, are hilarious. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, like I I interviewed uh, Lightstep about distributed tracing, and they're like, he gave an example, and he was talking about Lyft which used Twilio, which uses Lightstep <laughs> and he was talking about taking a lift himself. Yeah. We do live in an incestuous-
1: We do. We do. Software yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. We make the most of each other. So, well, that works. It's funny because
0: so uh. in the 90s, it was like, oh, startup selling to startups, that's going to lead to a big bubble. Yeah. And then now startups selling to startups, uh, I don't think it's as much of a bubble. It's just more of a reality.
1: Well, I think we're all kind of early adopters. And so, you know, because we're sort of natural risk takers and and like like the sort of leap of faith and are also able to deal with some complexity, you know, while larger organizations oftentimes have more constraints. You do see a lot of larger organizations that are explicitly working on being able to take risks and to sort of use innovative uh, startups on it. So,
0: I mean, that's, that's, that's the heart of kubecon it is one of the one of the i mean it's called the you kubecon know, but that really is one of the trends is like big companies trying to adopt technology more, like fast
1: Yep, yeah and it's existential you know like otherwise you know they're basically just gonna grow stale and die you know or they'll be secure all the way to bankruptcy right like you know they, they won't take any risks but the, the the world would just blow past them so
0: not not to change the subject but tell me about the modern enterprise buyer because it seems like that enterprise buyer is changing it's becoming more open to taking risks to adopting technologies more aggressively
1: yeah, I mean it, it, so multiple variants to it, but you know one aspect that's happening is the whole bottom up and sort of empower developers. So what you're seeing is certain groups what while before you might have had some CIO that sort of makes some top-down decision and you know everybody needs to sort of, you know, fall in line, what you see now is you're seeing a lot more decision power within groups. So then much of the organization organization might still remain conservative, but a slice, you know, one group or, you know, one team is more empowered to make a different decision. And then if they're proving successful, that might slip over to another one. And now it's proven to work within sort of this big banks ecosystem or something, and they'll grow. For us, all of our seven figure deals today are expansions, right? And they've all started and it might be a, you know, an acquisition that got acquired into a company, right? Or it might just be a a modernization team. So I think that's maybe in context of KubeCon, that's probably the most powerful element. Over like beyond that, there are companies that explicitly put like these uh, innovation agents. You know, actual people whose entire job is to connect. You know, f five hundred companies to the startup ecosystem, and they they kind of act as a go between. You know, where they understand the complexities of their businesses and how something can be adopted, and who what might it be interesting with interesting for and working with sort of the VCs or, or other sort of startup ecosystems to identify kind of innovative companies that might have something to offer. So I think that ladder is, is especially impactful, I think, in the world of outside of dev, you know, because maybe those teams are not quite as empowered today. But in the world of dev, I think it's more around kind of those leads and you know we we see that all the time you know it's sort of that bottom-up motion and and comes hand in hand with this sort of DevOps and desire for speed right so like if you don't empower those teams you're not going to move faster and you're going to be left behind
0: you were CTO of Akamai for a while how does starting your own company compare to working at a large company in a senior role.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so I got into Akamai because they acquired my startup, right? So I was working for. A, I founded a company called Blaze, uh, which did front-end optimization, and then was acquired into Akamai. I think when you get acquired, so I've been acquired twice. You know, once into IBM. This was Watchfire, and IBM acquired us, and then Akamai acquired uh, Blaze. And it really boils down to the appetite of the buyer coming into it. So being an exec at a large company as a whole you know is, is about scale you have to you have to consider that things are going to take longer but when you get them to go then you're kind of mobilizing you know a much greater force right in akamai if you change akamai you change the internet you know so in akamai i had the pleasure of working on http2 on sort of driving certificate transparency and promoting tls on you know internally building kind of connecting you know tech talks between the engineering teams, you know, across Akamai to help foster collaboration and engaging with the open with, with the performance community, the web performance community. So there's all these changes that you need to acknowledge they take a long time. When you get acquired into those companies, it's it's oftentimes you you get some extra benefit of the doubt, you know, because you're being acquired from the outside. The company has literally decided to sort of, you know, spend millions on getting much more than you, but in part getting you as well and therefore you get a bit more credit you know and uh, after a while it wears off you know like a, <laughs> you have to sort of stand on your own two legs but at the beginning it helps you have to mobilize change. I don't think I I like both you know I, I like a challenge and I like growth and I think at Akamai there are some amazing people and, and indeed we've managed to do some, some great things. At the end of the day I, I like creating and, and so I got the itch and left to, uh, to found Sneak.
0: Congratulations, by the way. On three, so you founded three companies at this
1: point. No, Watchfire wasn't mine. It was uh, I, I worked for Sanctum. They got acquired by Watchfire. They got acquired by IBM. Okay. And then I founded Blaze, and they got acquired by uh, cool. Akamai.
0: You've also founded a podcast, the Secure Developer. Indeed. So my experience of podcasting is that these emergent themes develop, like, I mean, there's a lot of cool things about podcasting. One thing that's cool is you do enough podcasts, you see emergent themes that totally take you by surprise. Is there anything that stands out? So the security developer, by the way, you interview CSOs or CISOs, chief information security officers, security people. What themes have stood out in conducting those interviews?
1: So it very much, you know, like a lot of a lot of insights, you know, come out of those, and I think that's what I love about it, really. It's, uh, it's sort of getting perspectives, you know, and getting kind of a smart people to sort of share, share their experiences and their views. I would say the primary theme is the acknowledgement in the world of security that security needs to change as well. You know, when you talk about building security into development, sort of the first objection that comes out is, hey, developers are not going to embrace security. They don't care about security, whatever it is, right? And I think we've successfully disproved that. But what is not discussed as much is how the security teams need to change. And security teams have very much been, you know, defaulting to, to this naysayer, to this, you know cynical entities that are all about you know governance and 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 like putting you might say guardrails but oftentimes blockers, you know roadblocks mm-hmm. in the paths. And that indeed doesn't work in the new ecosystem. And they've generally been a source of uh, like in old school security teams, they think of themselves as this source of authority, you know, of of power, you know, and, and they hold on to that power. What I observe, you know, when I talk to different teams and at lines with their different practices is they increasingly think of them as a service provider. You know, they think of themselves as, you know, they're there to help developers do the job right. You know, a lot less adversarial, a lot less, you know, negative. You see the actual teams, the makeup of the teams changing. They hire people more from a software engineering background than necessarily sort of a sysadmin or sort of IT or just pure security and risk background, and they build software, they build you know, whether it's libraries for developers to use or like internal services for them to run. And so all of those perspectives, you know, having like a, a positive mindset, you see a lot of, I was sort of joking with the CISO of uh, One Medical about hoodie driven security. You know, it's like they, there's a bunch of these, like One Medical has a, they give a, they have a security hoodie that they give to developers that do a good job. I think a Segment have like these special stickers that you get, you know, for your laptop if you kind of pass some security training. I think Optimizely also have this like security hero t-shirt that they give out. So, you know, th- this notion of like thinking about how to incentivize, how to not just sort of be bash someone on the head if they've done something wrong, but also celebrate them when they do something right. So all of that change in attitude in the security teams is something that I, I don't think I, I understood or sort of appreciated as much. And it's very much a theme and also almost like a very clear delineator when you talk to someone, if they're just talking about fixing technology. Or, and they talk about them, you know, how should developers change? Or are they looking internally, right? You know, looking in the mirror and saying, how should we change? How should we adapt? And I think those are the ones that are most successful.
0: Well, I encourage people to check out that podcast. I have not gotten a chance to listen to it because you told me about it 20 <laughs> minutes or an hour ago or whatever, but yeah.
1: I'll certainly check it out. Try it out, the secure developer.
0: Last question. If you weren't building SNCC, what company would you be building? Ooh.
1: I had the option and I chose to build SNCC. Ah, It's hard. Sneak is so sort of ingrained in my, uh, in my being at the moment. I think, I guess what I can answer is like, what would I do next? You know, Sneak is probably a very long journey still ahead. But I think for me, my passion is around, I'd like to do something that's more about sort of social change. And my passion is about education. I feel education is, our core approach to education is broken. This sort of expectation that at every geographic location, you would have a decent distribution of people that are good at teaching and good at every one of the subjects we want to teach that are available to teach kind of locally. It's just fundamentally flawed, you know, like there's just not going to happen. And that creates, you know, top that with sort of lack of government investments and all that. and But you really get to a place that is not exciting at all. So I, I'm a firm believer in technology and I think you can fix a lot of that with kind of the right technological solution. So I would say my next investment, I expect, you know, kind of the, the, the place post-SNIC, whenever that may be, That I'll invest my time is probably going to be about helping tackle that problem.
0: Guy Pajarni, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. If you want to extract value from your data, it can be difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have this unique opportunity to unlock the value of your data to users through your product or your service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give your users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action, within your application. To check out a sample application with embedded analytics, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com jaspersoft. You can find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. Jaspersoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product, because it's not just your company that wants analytics, it's also your customers. In a recent episode of Software Engineering Daily with TIBCO, we talked about visualizing data inside apps based on modern front-end libraries like React, Angular, and Vue.js. If you want to check out that episode, it's available on softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can also check out JasperSoft for yourself by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com jaspersoft and finding out about embedded analytics. Thanks to TIBCO for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily.